Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. It's time for me to say a very good morning to Colin McKenzie. Colin, great to see you. Good morning, Nick. Nice to be here. Well, thank you very much for coming in. I say that people like you don't really retire because when journalism's in your blood and when the search for a story and a scoop's in your blood, it never really leaves you, does it? No, you're absolutely right. Um, I can't say I'm doing much journalism at the moment, although I write the odd article. Um, But I have been concentrating on uh, directing and writing some documentaries in the last four or five years, and I've had three on BBC Two, Channel Four and Sky Arts. So, uh, and I'm looking for money for another one now. Ah, so this could be your perfect pitch. <laughs> uh, we'll come to that in, in a few moments' time. I mean, leaving Oxford in 1964, straight into a job on the Daily Express, and for the avoidance of doubt, the Daily Express at the time was a big deal. It was a, a proper paper. It was. I uh, applied to about 17 provincial papers um, in thinking that I'd get a proper training uh, at those papers, and uh, all of them at that time, 1964, would rather have kids straight out of school. So as a last resort, I wrote off to the Mail and the Express, and to my utter astonishment, was offered a job on both. And as you say, the Express was the huge uh, middle market paper at the time, uh, really was top dog, and so I joined the Express. And what were those early days like? Well, they were hilarious. I mean, I, they started me off on the William Hickey column, um, which has produced many wonderful journalists down the years, and I just couldn't believe there were 12 people on this column, and it produced actually two columns a day, a first edition column, and then everybody was sent off into the town of a night to come back with scoops uh, from, from, from their night wanderings, and uh, it was, it was a, a real education. And then I, I had about two or three years on there and went into becoming the junior education correspondent. We had all those student uh, uprisings in the late 60s, Uh, as you might or might not recall, you're too young. Uh, And then I went on to do news and then became a foreign correspondent in America for a while. And uh, presumably it was sort of part of the culture that you would have to get yourself into a a few scrapes along the way in order to get the the best stories. Oh, goodness, I, I had a million scrapes. I mean, the very first scrape I got into was my first week on the paper. And I submitted my expenses, £2.19 and sixpence, and I could see my editor's face was in absolute horror. He said, you can't possibly put that in. I thought, oh, my Lord, have I gone and defrauded them out of sixpence or something? He said, everybody puts in a minimum £15 or we'll all be found out. <laughs> so, so I learned a lesson very early on in life. Did, did, dare I say that set the tone for the next well, 45 years? <laughs> we trying to stay ahead I'm of the not game? saying I was as good an expert at expenses as some, some of my colleagues, but... Uh, uh, it's certainly, the salaries weren't terrific in journalism, and it was expected that journalists used to put in uh, one of I mean, I'll never forget the uh, 
1967 war between uh, Israel and Egypt. And our Rome correspondent, Robin Stafford, God bless his soul, he died last year, uh, was stuck in the desert for about six weeks and he was really short of an idea what to put in. And he eventually uh, sent his expenses in and a purchase of camel, £99.14 and six. <laughs> And uh, that went through without a moment's, moment's doubt. But about three months later, back in his office in Rome, he got a telex from the office saying, How health, Beaverbrook, camel. <laughs> and, of course, you don't become a foreign correspondent unless you're fairly quick on your feet. And he, he, he telexed straight back to funeral of Beaverbrook camel, £12.9 <laughs> and six was. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. Uh, do you look back on those days and think that you really enjoyed the golden age of, of writing, the golden age of Fleet Street, and you, you couldn't really replicate that now, or are you not really a nostalgist by nature? I think time moves on, but there's no question. I think the journalists that were around in those days had the most fun. I mean, we didn't uh, uh, have the sort of instant reaction you can go and get with uh, WhatsApping somebody in, uh, I mean, for example, we're going to talk about Biggs later, but I had to wait by a telephone for four hours after his arrest in Rio before I could get through to the office to tell him what had happened. I mean, you can't imagine. That's only 45 years ago. Uh, nowadays, you know, you can talk to somebody on the other side of the moon uh, and see them in pictures. So the whole landscape has changed dramatically. Uh, and it was a huge amount of fun in those days, there's no question. I think now you go into an office, go sometimes back into a party at the Daily Mail, and it's more like a sort of merchant bank. It's all quiet, there's no yeah. cigarettes, there's no typewriters, uh, they're all glued to the screen. I'm terrified that some of these poor sub-editors will end up with uh, uh, repetitive strain syndrome <laughs> or whatever it is, because uh, it doesn't seem quite the fun it used to be. We used to have four-hour lunches, get back to the office <laughs> drunk as skunks and how we got the paper out I have no idea I just want to time travel Colin you're, just, you're, <laughs> making, it, you're making it sound fantastically exciting but of course there was high pressure as well because you had a huge readership and you were expected to deliver on stories and presumably if you didn't the consequences could be quite severe yes uh, the, war, the unions were quite powerful in those days and everybody was a member of the NEJ or whatever and of course the print unions were extremely powerful and they could hold a paper to ransom overnight, which is why uh, in 1986, when Rupert Murdoch decided to move to Canary Wharf, it was such a revolution in the whole uh, newspaper business. But you're right, uh, there was enormous pressure to produce good stories and produce scoops. Uh, and um, uh, I know I'm known for one particular scoop, but um, there were many others down the, down the years. Uh, I don't know whether you love being remembered for the Ronnie Big scoop finding Ronnie Biggs in Rio, <laughs> or whether it's something that irks you because it's something that essentially defines your career. This is it. This is the front page of the Express in 1974. Uh, um, 74. So that's about the 30th of January, 74, I think. So, so tell me how it all started. What, the big story? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, it's a piece of complete and utter luck, which you, uh, sorry to use your name, mm. but like most good stories, uh, some of it's hard work and some of it is pure luck. And um, I gave a little pre-Christmas party. I was living in Battersea at the time, invited the neighbours, and one of the uh, our neighbours was a Russian countess whose son had been backpacking around South America uh, in the summer of 73. And uh, he met me and... Um, he suddenly said, uh, oh, I met somebody you'd be fascinated to meet, having heard that you're a journalist. 
And before he could even finish the sentence, I said, you bumped into Ronnie Biggs in Rio, didn't you? And he went absolutely crimson. And I just knew I'd hit the nail on the head. And uh, I didn't pursue it for a couple of days. Took him down to the local pub. And I said, Constantine, I was right, wasn't I? He said, how on earth did you know that? I said, well, there are only two great stories around at the moment. One was trying to find Howard Hughes. The other one was trying to find the great train robber. I'd been on the run for 10 years. And uh, I took a chance. And, and I'm right, aren't I? Because I, I could tell from your reaction. He said, well, I can't believe it. He said, you're absolutely right. I did meet him. He then told me all about Biggs and his life in Rio and what was going on. And he then delivered the extraordinary news that Biggs had run out of money and ideas and was quite keen to give himself up for a bit of uh, reward for his wife in Australia, come back and do the rest of his time. Because between being sentenced to 30 years in 1963 and 1974, a new parole system had come in, so he wasn't going to have to serve 20 years minimum of the 30-year sentence. He would have only had to serve one-third. So he could face the idea of doing... He'd already done a year and a half before he escaped from Wandsworth Prison. He could face the idea of doing another eight and a half, nine years... Uh, and then carrying on with his life. And so that was the basis upon which I was able to telephone him in Rio and, and set, set up a meeting with him. So in a sense, did you become his broker? No, I wasn't a broker. I wasn't, I wasn't telling anybody else. I was, the only thing I was prepared to do was to, uh, after I'd got the story and the full picture story and the story of his life on the run for nine and a half years, I was going to take him down to the British consulate in, uh, in Rio mm offer him up and say I'd come back with him on the first plane back to London, having had two weeks with him in advance. Unfortunately, that all went by the way when um, my, the editor of the Express, Mr Ian McColl, who's no longer with us, um, decided uh, off his own bat, without telling me or consulting me or consulting the staff, that he would uh, inform Scotland Yard what was going on. So your editor stitched you up, essentially. You still got a really good scoop, but it could have been a scoop times ten if he hadn't... Well, I'm not saying the scoop would have been any bigger, but we would have had uh, the proper result, Mm. and Mr Biggs would have been back inside. As a result of Mr McCall's intervention with Scotland Yard, Slipper of the Yard was sent out there, arrested Biggs, and the Brazilian police, quite rightly, took umbrage. They weren't a banana republic. It was a huge country, and they wanted to know two things. First of all, what on earth was Scotland Yard doing without them... Um, so much as a buy or leave, arresting somebody in, uh, in Copacabana. And f- secondly, what on earth, how on earth had this man lived in Rio for four years? Uh, they were very, very tight on things like papers and passports and everything. How on earth had this man survived for four years undetected? And so the Brazilians took, took umbrage, sent him up to prison in Brasilia for three months while they decided what to do with him. And, of course, uh, the moment was lost, and poor Mr Slipper and his companion, Sergeant Jones, had to come back to London with their tails between their legs. What sort of impact did, did the whole episode leave on you personally? Well, uh, it was quite a shock um, when I learned what had happened and that, that the editor had, had uh, informed the police. I mean, a huge shock. And I was faced with a moral dilemma and uh, whether to tell Biggs or not. And in fact, uh, Bill Lovelace, my photographer, and I uh, were to be given four days with him before Slipper arrested him. And in the space of about five hours, I was uh, shocked to discover they were bringing it forward two days. Mm. And I had no chance of telling Biggs because he'd gone off with another girlfriend overnight and I had no idea where he'd gone. There were no mobile phones and in any case he hadn't paid his own phone bill, so even if he'd gone to his own apartment, I couldn't get hold of him. 
and I was going to offer him the choice of giving himself up to the police in Rio or going back on the run. And I never had that chance because he just walked straight into the trap when they set it for him the following morning. And they brought forward the arrest by two days. Again, um, basically uh, betraying us. So you've, you've gone to Rio and you, you've ended up forming a, a relationship of sorts with one of the most notorious criminals at the time, or that era or any other era. Did you, did you find you came to quite like him? I did. Uh, I did quite like him. And, and oddly enough, Biggs wasn't your archetypal uh, villain in the sense that he was a sort of violent man. He was quite well read as a result of having been in prison. Mm. And, and he used to go in the prison library and read up. And uh, he was a very charming man. He'd learned Portuguese. Most villains wouldn't be capable of doing that in the space of four years, let's say, on the run. And he was quite a clever craftsman. He was a carpenter. And he'd been working for expat. Americans and Brits in Rio uh, doing up their houses and things and he was an engaging individual and um, he had this very beautiful girlfriend on his hands not the one who eventually gave birth to his child but uh, she was only about 22 and he was going on and on and on about the fact that you could pull birds like nobody's business in Rio <laughs> even as a 48 year old man or whatever he was at the time you know and uh, he was quite tall six foot one blue eyes quite a gringo, but very tanned, and, and he was a, a pleasant individual to talk to. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. And Neil, you sadly had to hang up the saddle as well. Um, <laughs> yes, I can't quite do the weight these days. All well with you? Yes, I, I, it's the time of year when a young man's thoughts uh, turn to the Cotswolds in March, basically. Uh, Something happening there? Uh, well, no, actually, I'm thinking about the Utoxus at Grand National, really. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, no, it's all uh, the, the NFL season's coming to an end. So it's around that time where I start thinking maybe I should have an anti post bet. To, you know, Jeffrey Bernard used to say that to me if you, if you have an anti post bet, you won't uh, top yourself, basically. <laughs> I could. <laughs> I suspect that Jeffrey Bernard never thought about the NFL and the the idea of the Rams turning over Dallas last night. Well, yes, exactly, yes. You got time for a quick Jeffrey Bernard story? I've suddenly thought of Jeffrey yeah, Bernard. Yeah, why not? I mean, we seem to be in that very much in that vein. No, because Jeffrey, after. I thought of Jeffrey Bernard this week because David Ashforth was in the Racing Post with some Jeffrey Bernard stuff. Um, but it made me think of a story. Jeffrey Bernard when he first moved to Lambourne and uh, you know he lived in some tiny little cottage in the middle of nowhere he was looking after it for somebody um, I'm sure everyone at home knows who Jeffrey Bernard is he was, he was a great journalist we who, tend uh, to assume knowledge on this yeah program. yeah yeah okay well, we, than, we will, we will. All right, it's fine okay yeah. no problem um, so anyway he's he's finds himself stuck in this cottage you know three miles from the village that's got one shop and one pub and uh, he's thinking to himself well, it's going to cost you know he's got to go to the pub every day going to cost uh, too much in taxis. So every day he would uh, uh, go to the pub and just before he went in there he would go in the post office, uh, buy a postcard and post it to himself. Uh, and then the next day the postman would arrive in his little van, deliver the postcard and he'd say, oh, any chance of a lift into the village? <laughs> And uh, he would do that every wow. day. <laughs> I thought I'd heard all the Jeffrey Bernard stories, but I, I, I hadn't heard that one. Uh, you don't have to convince yourself of your popularity, though, surely. 
Uh, no, hopefully not. No, I have Twitter to remind me I'm not popular. On a somewhat more serious note, yes. it's been quite an important week, uh, potentially gambling legislation-wise. Uh, uh, yeah, I, well, I saw that story that um, Sky Bethian gave me of appointed somebody to be the, the kind of, uh, I don't know what the job title is, head of responsible gambling or something like that. Uh, partly, I think Richard Flint stopped being the CEO and now he's the executive chair uh, and he's quite into the idea of them being on top of things with responsible gambling. And Sky TV, separate company, mm. uh, made a rule in November that there'd only be one gambling advert uh, in each uh, you know, run of adverts. Does that apply uh, to their horse racing output as well? I don't know whether it started yet. No, football, football. Uh, during football. I don't, and it may be only during live football. I can't, I'm trying to remember now, actually. Uh, but uh, I, I certainly think, you know, the way that Fogtees went, people have learned a slight lesson that, you know, well, first of all, the industry is heavily criticised because they didn't really uh, grasp the nettle themselves. And, uh, you know, eventually the government had to come in and stamp all over them. And perhaps some people in the industry industry think uh, maybe we should regulate ourselves a little bit and be a bit more careful because uh, look at how that worked out. So, you know, Sky obviously don't have betting shops, so <coughs> properties didn't really affect them. But now they're yeah. looking at things like, you know, the amount of uh, gambling talk during football coverage, uh, the amount of advertising. Uh, and I saw quite a lot of stuff on Twitter yesterday about uh, credit card betting. I mean, there's also a, there's a whole thing about, you know, appeasement. Some people would say, well, you know, a lot of the Fobty stuff, it was it was done on, uh, uh, I mean, it's like Brexit, isn't it? Everything's like Brexit. It was done on kind of <laughs> gut reaction and feeling, and people sort of talked about the crack cocaine of gambling. Uh, but there wasn't enough in terms of uh, evidence-based and stats and stuff like that. And I saw people talking yesterday about credit card gambling and saying, oh, it's terrible, we should ban all of that because if you're using your credit card, you must be a huge addict. But, and then I, quite a lot of other people were saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, I just quite like it because I get some points on my card or whatever and I pay it off at the end of each month and it's convenient for me. Um, and, you know, there's that whole kind of nanny state against, you know, personal responsibility thing. But, you know, also on this program, the thing that we love talking about more than fobties is the whip. And uh, I kind of feel like there's sort of similar arguments that, you know, if in, in terms of horse racing, there's this whole uh, how far do, how far do we appease the kind of anti lobby, uh, and if we do appease them, does that make them go away and leave us to get on with running something that you know a lot of people enjoy? Uh, or do we, uh, do we, you know, do we have to police ourselves? Because you've mentioned Brexit and mm. the whip in the same sentence, <laughs> by the way. And Fobtees. I mean, I basically, I basically did luck on Sunday. Because you mentioned Brexit, Fobtees and the whip already, I'm going to move <laughs> very briskly from compulsive gambling to impulsive star, the winner of yesterday's ah, yes. classic chase, uh, Warwick in the hands of Sam Whaley-Cohen. <laughs> Uh, tip by price-wise in the racing post as he'll never let me forget as I've mercilessly teased him for the selection. This horse trained by Neil Mulholland has booked his ticket to the four-miler at Cheltenham and uh, he did it in good fashion as well, Lorne, under a, uh, dare I say, a typical swashbuckling Sam Welly Cohen ride. All the more swash and buckle given the fact that he'd had to get down and take a few more pounds off to ride the horse. I thought it was an incredible performance by um, Sam Welly Cohen to A, to lose the weight because he's, um, he's well muscled up, he's not a scrawny person. But the fact that he is a full-time dentist um, as well makes uh, 
huge difference. He hasn't got the time to ride out as many other jockeys. But he, it's the commitment. And Sam used to be criticised. I think until Ruby Walsh turned around and said, why is everyone criticising him? He's as good as any professional. Then people sort of actually backed down. But he's won three fox hunters at Aintree. He's won a Gold Cup. He's won a King George. This man can clearly ride very well. Yes, he rides good horses, but what's the point putting on a bad one? Uh, the, the point that struck me was the longevity of his career, relatively Definitely. speaking, because I'm still sort of thinking of him as a young rider, but he's to been doing with this. With his three mm. children. Exactly, yeah. and he's been doing this for the for business end of two decades. Yeah, definitely, and doing it very well. And as I said, I think it's his third or fourth win of the season, which shows how little chance he gets, but he still rides a very polished race. Well, in a sense, he's taking his own chances, isn't he? He's he is. dictating what, he, what he's yeah. going to do. Uh, Neil, as far as the horse is concerned, is he a meaningful player for a, a race at the Cheltenham Festival? Do you think he's been to the Potemps well, final was, before as favourite? and He was and, and fourth flopped. last year, wasn't he? In the, well, in, yes. the, in the uh, National Hunt Chase. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't really kind of get home, but he's an older horse now. He's, he's quite inexperienced. Was he a nine-year-old? I mean, he hasn't. He's only run about ten times over fences, hasn't he? Not even that, probably. Um, yeah, why not? I mean, uh, I, I, I noticed they were talking about the Grand National down the road. I mean, why not as well? You know, he's in the Grand National. I think he's forty to one for the Grand National at the moment. Um, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a quite a big fan of Sam Wadeco, and I was, I was always a big long run fan. And I, yeah. I, I, you know, I backed it a few times, and I, people would sometimes say to me, "Well, you know, don't you worry about the jockey?" I was like, "Well, not really." I mean, like he's always been all right, I think, yeah. hasn't he? I think he's really good now. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, improves with age. People improve with age. I like to say that. I hope so. But do we think he had the burger last night? This I hope so. Nine, I hope stone, so. nine stone twelve was well, it? I mean, uh, father, I thought he would put up a couple of, you know, like he's when, he, when your father's father tweeted telling everyone that he's going to, yeah, yeah. he that's, won't make the weight. It's like yeah. that. Actually, that's obviously the spur he needed. That was it? clearly that the incentive. Robert's that competitive that he was just goading him into taking the extra and it worked. The extra few ounces off. But even in a in a driving finish, he didn't. You know, often if you're darting to that degree, the legs are the first thing that go. But he didn't. You know, he looked. Well, and also, also like you know, he was headed, wasn't he? He looked like he, yeah. he was going to get beat. I thought um, uh, I can't remember the Tristan Davis horse. I thought he was coming. Know. Yeah, it was coming to win the race, and yeah. uh, he's he's come back well. You know, yeah. which was you know partly the horse, obviously. Okay, so impulsive star it was that won the uh, the classic chase. Let's have a look at, uh, at, the, at the novice chase, uh, the novice hurdle, I should say. Yesterday, at Warwick, the Leamington novices hurdle. This was a success for Dan Skelton's Beakstown. Now, the favourite title flow flopped badly in this race. Whether it was the ground, I'm, I'm not sure, but he's in the, the red cap there. And the favourite overnight was a non-runner, Birchdale. So it it left. Uh, Beakstown with a slightly easier task, but notwithstanding that, Lorne, he you just look at the shots of him here from the, from the track of the close-up camera. He's a, a slab of a horse, isn't he? Big it, raw. He's horse. over seventeen hands. And if you heard Dan Skelton say yesterday, last time out he got beaten, and he and Brian Drew sat down, and Brian said, "Why was he beaten?" And Dan said, "I think I ran him too quickly." And he said, "Right, what are we going to do with this horse this year?" And Brian said, "Right, let's just look after him this year." because he is a prospective chaser, and that's what we want to do. So they're not going to chase every prize this year. They're going to look after him for next year. Having said that, he's 17 hands, he's raw, he, he will fill out tremendously, and who better to train a young novice mm. than Dan Skelton? That was a good interview, wasn't it? He Very did afterwards, I thought. Yeah, yeah I mean, he's, uh, he sort of basically said, you know, we don't, we don't really want to um, you know, do too much with him this year. He's going to be a big growing chaser for next year and uh, 
um, make him the best novice chaser you can. I think he oh, said the owner just said to like him. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, o very good. Ollie Murphy trained the third horse home there, Finorn Bourne. They are between them, Dan Skelton and Ollie Murphy, uh, turning the sort of West Midlands into the yes. latest big numerical powerhouse. Mm. Aren't they? Great. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, they've both learnt from top people. Um, Dan spent, was it, I think, ten years with Paul Nichols. Ollie Murphy spent five years with Gordon Elliott. Um, and they've come, they've come at it firing, all guns blazing. I mean, I think Dan's brilliant, but Ollie has been amazing in the way he has started up and running, firing winners on the flat anywhere, any, you know, just like Gordon. You know, anywhere a horse can win, he will take it and make sure it wins. Um, but I, I just think it's so good for racing to have these young trainers. They're so exciting. They're going forward. Um, and they're not necessarily fueled by huge amounts of money, but it does, it, it, it really, it shows their talents to the full. It's interesting you should say that because a lot of trainers, I know Jo Davis is coming in a little bit later and she's written some really passionate stuff on her blog this week. A lot of trainers say that their struggle is down to the big yards getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it's squeezing out the smaller stable. You're saying you think that their youth and enterprise and ambition is actually driving the game forward. Well, it is. I mean, look at Ireland as well. You know, with Gordon Elliott and Willie Mullins, people want to be part of a successful team, don't they? People love it. You know, obviously owners said, you know, I've got a horse with Dan Scott and Ollie Murphy. People love talking about that, and I, and I think it's I think it's very exciting and important that we do have figureheads like this. But young lads, they're young and keen. Mm. They're not burnt out. You know, I mean, that's what you, you've got to admire about someone like Nicky Henderson at his yeah. age to still be He's as still enthusiastic. Going. I know, and we've you know. seen that with so many people who've, who've come on the program, and essentially it's mm. their life, and they they, yeah. they find no way of letting go of it. And one man who has certainly got more more to offer is Sam Whaley Cohen, who does join us on the line now. Sam, good morning. Morning, Nick. How are you doing? Yeah, very good form. Thank you very much. We were wondering, I don't know if you heard us, whether it was your father <laughs> tweeting everybody that you were going to put up overweight that had actually inspired you to take the last couple of pounds off. <laughs> it was kind, of kind of into hu ritually humiliate you to the, to the thousands. Yeah, he just wanted to eat my breakfast. No, uh, <laughs> you always try and do the best way you can, but the last couple of pounds, you're never sure um, they're going to come off or not. So we thought it was better just to say there was a risk. Um, and then, uh, you know, it was great, it came off, but uh, didn't, didn't want to surprise people by being a bit overweight if, if it had gone the other way. And it was a tight enough finish as well. Line's not great, Sam, so I won't keep you too long. Um, were you expecting him to, to deliver yesterday? Did you think he, that was the right race for him to sort of really uh, shine? I mean, he was fancied for the um, Bet 365 Gold Cup and Scottish National, so we knew he sort of had a chance, but... His run at Plumpton uh, didn't fill us with huge confidence. And uh, he, he's a strange horse. He's a very cold sort of horse. So he felt he needed a, a, a field and to get his blood up. And uh, I, I said to Noel, actually, who rode him at Plumpton, you know, he, he's a different horse with, with a crowd around him. And uh, so it was great. As soon as it got over the first fence, I knew you know, he was alive and in my hands and, and going to run a good race. So with that in mind, then, do you think that there is a an even bigger race than him. Yesterday's race was a, a very important race. It was the feature race on a Saturday afternoon. But do you think he's got the basic talent to be able to take a hand in, say, this year's four-miler with another year under his belt or even a Grand National? I mean, I think I think he's a handicapper. Um, so whether he's good enough to win a four-miler, I mean, when you look at the pedigree of some of the things that come out of the four-miler, whether it's Native River or any of a handful of, of the real stars that go on up to sort of 170s, it's hard to know whether he's, he's that level. But, but he, you know, you, you'd hope he progressed on that. I mean, that's uh, breaking his maiden yesterday. And, and actually, he's, he's learned it often. He's 
jumped well. He, he jumped with courage. He's handled the crowd and uh, and actually stayed on well at the end. So you'd hope you'd hope um, you know you, you might have more to come. And I, I was I was saying it might have more to do with me than it has to do with you. I still sort of think of you as a young amateur rider, which I'm sure you're you're thrilled by. But of course, you've been doing this for a long time now. Do, do you do you feel ever any less enthusiasm than you did before? Well, do you know, yesterday I think it was James Byrne who was second, and the first time I rode at Warwick, James wasn't born, so that uh, <laughs> that, that, that that made me uh, that made me feel a little lost. But uh, you know, there there are days like yesterday that are full of uh, full of um, excitement and, and love for it, and there are days where you go hungry and it doesn't go right, and then you think, I oh, really I should be wise enough to this by now. Um, so, but it's great when it goes right. You know, it's a, it's, it's an absolute addiction, so it's hard to hard to give it up. Are you still an adrenaline junkie? Um, well, it speaks for itself, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it's the pleasure of riding a good horse and, and jumping like that. And, uh, you know, there's no, there's no feeling like a winner. And as far as the, the rest of the season for you is concerned, what, you, what, are, what are going to be the key objectives? What are going to be the key horses to take you through the, the, the major festivals? Well, I think um, like the young master who, who had a really good start to the season and then got caught out by the softer ground at, at the Hennessy um, should, um, should, should go back to Cheltenham and be really positive and, and he might um, get an entry in the national again. Um, got theatre territory who, who just hasn't managed to win a race but keeps running so well you think she will eventually find one and uh, an impulsive start and, and a couple of young horses coming through as well so um, you know it's, uh, it's an exciting year for us actually we had a bit of a quiet year last year but got a few few that, that look like they could make into proper horses this year Sam as I said the line's not great but thank you so much for joining us and look forward to catching up with you soon Pleasure. Speak soon. Bye. Sam Cohen, the man who won on Impulsive Dancer yesterday. The feature race at um, Kempton was the Lanzarote Hurdle, and it was the biggest career success for a young rider who, well, you kind of had an idea he might be good, given that he's called John Joe O'Neill, but he really is He really is the business. He, he won on Jenny Candlish's big-time dancer, who is just in mid-pack here, the red with the black cap. And I, if you look at the horse closely, he's always trying to do a little bit more than his jockey ideally wanted, but uh, uh, John Joe got him beautifully settled, Lorne. Yeah, um, he's obviously he's obviously in the right place um, to learn how to be a, an excellent jockey. But actually, even when you then put them on the big stage, it doesn't always happen. But he has been incredibly cool here. He's ridden the perfect race, like you say, that the horse was a little keen early on, and he's produced it perfectly. Um, I thought he showed huge maturity riding, you know, yesterday, and it was lovely to see, you know, a, a jockey for the future. Neil, I know punters like to latch on to young jockeys who who can claim the cat is well and truly out of the bag now. Yeah, isn't it? I think I think so. Yeah, people are starting to uh, to say uh, uh, for John Joe O'Neill Senior, they're sort of saying yeah, he's the father of, uh, of John Joe O'Neill now, aren't they? Yeah, he's. Uh, <laughs> It, he's, no, he's very good, definitely. Excellent. And a big success for trainer Jenny Candler. She's on the line now. Jenny, morning. Good morning. Um, wonderful success. You weren't able to be at Kempton yesterday, but there, I can assure you there was a huge support team there, and they were very, very thrilled, as I'm sure you were watching on. Oh, absolutely. Um, screaming around the lounge, dancing around the lounge, and, yeah, it was fantastic. And I, I'm probably better off at home, Nick, if I'm honest with you. I get too nervous. <laughs> 
I'm not. I'm not sure. I believe that, Jenny. But you had uh, you, you had able substitutes there for sure. As far as this horse is concerned, I didn't realise until I sort of saw him in the flesh quite what a big, robust beast he is. Yeah, he is. He's you know he's like he's he's, he's a big horse. He's got probably chaser written all over him. Um, on pedigree, not at all. But literally on looks and and the ability he's shown, yeah, he'd probably make a lovely chaser. And it didn't seem as though it was that much of a surprise to Alan and, and, and your team yesterday either. And, and I know a few of your owners had backed him at big prices. Definitely not. I mean, I think if, probably if he'd have been with one of the, the, the bigger yards after he'd win at Doncaster, he probably wouldn't have gone under the radar so much. But I've got to give all credit to Alan. There was only one place you... Hmm. Our, uh, our line is not great to Jenny. I don't know if, uh, if you can still hear me, Jenny. I can, I can still hear yeah, you, yeah. You just, you just disappeared there for a second. I was just asking, you know, to what extent it had surprised you. You said not at all um, because you know, he's a, a horse who's now sort of developing and coming to himself. And, and you must hope that there's a fair bit more to come. I hope so. And I think, like I said, that fair news to Alan, the next stop after um, Doncaster was the Lanzarote. And um, I think the horse is increasing in confidence. He's had his problems. Nick, I won't deny that. But his confidence is sky high. And after watching him yesterday, I think, you know, there's still a bit more to come. And you've got plenty of uh, uh, races into him now as well and plenty of conditioning. For you, Jenny, and for your yard, what did that signify yesterday? Do, do you feel that that's an, another major step forward for you? Or do you think, well, I've been in the game enough time now. I, I don't get too carried away with it. No, I think it's a major step forward. I think you, you, the, you, a lot of the small yards, you're there grafting away. You want quality horses and oh, hopefully our quality is getting better all the time. And there's nothing like that to raise your profile, is there? But as you well know, I don't do a lot of media things. I don't actually go to the races as much as I'd probably like. But um, Alan does all that side of it. But for a team like ours, if it can just raise your profile a bit and turn a few heads, then hopefully nicer horses will come. And like I say, the team that we've got are fantastic. And, you know, it, it was brilliant yesterday. I can't emphasise enough. And Jenny, is that a conscious decision you've taken? Because you know, I've known you quite a long time now and, and always used to On see you... On the days of presenting Arab Racing at, at Newbury, I think, I've known you. Absolutely, exactly. You know, and, and you, were, you were always great on telly and, and you, you were never shy in, in, in sort of doing the customer-facing bit. Did you just take a conscious decision that you wanted to spend more time hands-on with the horses? I think, Nick, as the yard progressed and we got more horses, it's evident that, you know, I can't be in two places at once. And to be fair to Alan, since he was forced to retire from the saddle, he loves going racing. He loves that bit of banter that they get at the races. And almost that filled a gap for him. And fair news, he's better at that than me, probably. And my niche is at home, and I love being in the cocoon effect of the horses. And I think that's where my time's best spent, and it's what I love doing. And, you know, I love the races, don't get me wrong, but I've got to be honest, when I'm cocooned with the horses at home here... That's where I'm at my best and my happiest. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. But it is, as we welcome you back to the Luck on Sunday studio, a time when looking after racing's workforce and looking after the horses, of course, are uppermost in our minds. There's been much talk in the last 10 days, fortnight, about there being a, a crisis in staffing, how to recruit and retain and look after uh, stable and stud staff and what we should be doing about it. Should we be doing more about it? Uh, this week, Joe Davis, the East Garston trainer, wrote uh, an extremely informative, quite emotive at times, blog, which really touched a chord, with, particularly with a lot of the smaller stables around the country. I'm delighted to say that, that Joe joins us in the, in the studio this morning. Joe, thank you very much for coming in. When you poured your heart out on uh, on social media this week did you expect the reaction to be quite what it was 
Good God, no. I thought I would write it. I just stuck it on my Facebook page and thought possibly my mum and maybe a few friends would <laughs> read it. And I was driving to Leicester and I thought, my phone's gone a bit strange and it was ting, ting, ting. And I thought, I couldn't work it out. But you forget that Facebook's linked to Twitter. I'm not a great Twitter user. I don't really know how that works, to be honest with you. And I completely overwhelmed. And what was lovely is, is how much good feeling there was from people and how many nice things people said. And it was really, really nice. It was a little bit terrifying, but, yeah, nice. So, essentially, you were sort of trying to give people an indication as to what it was actually like, the day-to-day running of a stable with relatively few horses, yeah. relatively few staff. Yeah. It, it gives the impression of a a very dedicated trainer who's trying to create a a really good atmosphere and enjoy the sport of horse racing, but there were an awful lot of difficulties, both emotional and financial, that you perhaps felt were underappreciated. Would that be fair? I think it's my choice to be a trainer and it's my choice to do what I do, and you've got to take the bad times with the good times. But I think what's so important is... We do it because we love horses, first and foremost, because, you know, trainers of, of the level I'm training at, we know that we might get that one good horse, but the odds are we probably won't, so we've just got to keep slogging away. It's like an addiction. You can never get away from it. When you're having a bad time, you think the good time's just around the corner. Mm. So when you're having a bad time, like we've had for the past year, our staff are the most important part of what we do because they have to put up with having disappointment after disappointment when the horses are ill what have you without them we couldn't do it and when you're training at the level I am I'm up at half five with them every morning and starting at six I ride six or seven lots I muck out six or seven boxes I drive the lorry to the races there are hundreds of trainers all across the country doing the same as I do and mainly racing is portrayed more on the glamour side and the, the higher echelons and I think it's important to remember that the, the smaller stables are are paying wages and they're still paying to have um, their license and they're still paying to put horses in races and and you know they're still working hard at the bottom end and I think the staff trying to encourage more staff into racing is the most important thing we can do and on top of that even more important is giving them a better deal you know I think it's unbelievably ridiculous they still do a 12 and a half day fortnight how can you expect somebody to work for 12 and a half days when they want to have time with their families, they want time off. I mean, it's a no-brainer. That's exactly where it should be changed to start with. I'm guessing that you work more than a 12 and a half day fortnight. <laughs> My God, yeah. You never stop. I'm tired. You know, I, I, if I'm honest, I am tired to the bone at the moment. But sheer grit and, like, I'm not giving up because I know that the horses are coming right. I know they're coming right. And good times around the corner and that's the only thing that keeps you going you know and you know when you're in the middle of a good time and everything's running in the frame even though you're enjoying it there's something in the back of your mind going I know what's around the corner you know this doesn't last Mm. and you have to prepare yourself you can't get carried away when it's going well and you you have to keep picking yourself up when it's going badly and say I didn't stop being able to train things circumstances you know and you know that keep plugging it through it will come through the other side but it, it you know it's tough and it's especially when every month you, you know you just get through the month and you see your staff working and you constantly feel you have to pick them up because it's going badly and you can't remunerate you, know, you can't give them enough money to make up for that it's it's you know it's quite soul destroying sometimes but when it goes well there's no better feeling and and how lucky 
I am to do what I do and be out watching the sun come up in the mornings on a lovely horse. It might not be a top-class horse, but, you know, you do it because that's what you do. You lose sight of that sometimes. So earlier in the week, um, I rang you and you said, Nick, I'm just at the bottom of the gallop, so I'll ring you back. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was You fun. rang me back a bit sooner than you thought. I could get you, my phone in my pocket. You pocket-dialed me. <laughs> Just as you set up, up the gallop, walking, <laughs> and I, it was, and I, I, it was very naughty of me, but I kept the phone on, and all I could hear was whooping and laughing, and just, and I could hear the wind through the phone, and you riding this oh, horse up the gallops, and you, I could, it was seven thirty in the morning when I was like, oh, trying to make myself a cup of coffee and recognise which of my children was which, and then, and, and there, and there was you just out there in the fresh air with the noise oh, and the wind and the laughter and the you know and the what? atmosphere. And, yeah. and I thought, yes, you are, you are having a bit of a struggle, but yeah. you're loving it at the same time. Yeah, you have to be in the moment, don't you? You have to... I mean, it's the only time when I'm riding, sometimes I don't actually think about what I'm doing and suddenly realise I'm at the top of the gallop, but it's the only time where I have to concentrate because I have to work with the horse. So, and it's the same, the only other thing I enjoy apart from riding is skiing. I'm trying to stay alive then, quite frankly, so, you know. <laughs> um, and trying to lay out with my partner, who is fearless. So I don't stress and worry about work and you know panic and some things you can't change mm. you know so you just have to work on what you can deal with and that's the horse at that moment and that for me the horse people forget the horses are the most central point of what we do but then all the other things we have to deal with that's always there so at least if I get that chance riding and working with the horse and laughing and joking with Trace who works with me and rides out I'd rather me and him ride all of them and know what where we are with them than taking on possibly riders that wouldn't really suit my way of training. So I have two lovely yard people and two of us ride all morning and we get it done and we enjoy it because, you know, why wouldn't you enjoy it in the rain and the wind and the cold? <laughs> the BHA have made an enormous effort to recruit, train, retain racing staff. And there's an awful lot of work going into it. We've seen careers in racing. Mm -hmm. the, the promoting the sport is something that is fulfilling, enjoyable, not the worst money in the world relative to, to some other yeah. um, jobs. Um, but what's, what's, your, what's your practical experience of attempting to recruit and retrain, retrain oh, staff? I could, honest to God, we, we joke, Trace that works for me, he worked for me years ago when I first started, and we joke about the book and you know the chapters everything that happens to a small trainer the next mm -hmm. chapter what you wouldn't believe it quite frankly it would be like a work of fiction and the last few years of trying to employ staff it, it's changed drastically in the last few years i mean the last year i've been great i've had some great guys but before that i literally got to the point where i didn't want to walk in my own yard and i got to the point where i thought i am scared for the future of the young people and i think uh, the big problem the BHA face on the other side of the coin is social media and the pressure young people have nowadays when they all are looking and watching what all their friends are doing, maybe people that don't work with horses or maybe people that work in a different yard. What we all forget is a lot of what's put on social media isn't particularly the truth, but it's how people want their lives to be portrayed. So you've got all these young people looking going, well, I want more money, I want more time off, and, and with all due respect, who can blame them in racing? You know, we're, we're working from seven, six in the morning, seven in the morning to sometimes one in the morning racing. You know, they need more time off, but also the BHA will struggle because people don't want to get through the hard graft anymore. You've got colleges um, giving people the chance to go to college, 
far more than they did have and most kids are going to want that qualification because then in their head they don't have to go in and shovel manure <laughs> um, they don't they don't have to do the hard graft but there's no place well there is a place to an extent and I also feel the, the people that have done their time in racing, it's lovely to see now a few of the um, old travelling head lads and girls now working for the BHA starting or on the gate at the races. I think it's fantastic to see. But if we think we can't support a family, we can't give them accommodation a lot of the time, there is no accommodation, how can you expect a married um, person to support their family on the wages that we pay in racing in the majority. I'm not saying that it's all bad, some are good, some are bad, do you know what I mean? But there has to be a place for them after racing because this is one of the only industries where you either train or you're assistant or a head lad, what else is there? So they give all this time and all their life to racing and when they get too old to ride out or they're, you know, they're tired, where, where can they go? So why not give them the chance to train the young people coming through? Why not make a circle? So you, you train the people that have been in racing with all the wealth and knowledge they've learned mm -hmm. to then go and train the young people coming through. Because I do feel that, yes, the racing school does a great job, but they have nine weeks. And then they're put into a yard. With all due respect, a lot of them have an inflated sense of in, entitlement and they're not good enough. They, they get lost, maybe. They don't have mentoring because they're so busy in yards, you know. So I, I don't know. I'd like to see more on that respect. I think, first and foremost, change the working hours. I don't care what anybody says. They should not be working through a weekend. You know, that's your first, first thing they should change. So they shouldn't work a whole weekend? They shouldn't work 12 and a half days. You should never, you should, people should not be expected to work 12 and a half days and then have a day and a half off. Archaic. And, and I think until you change that, how are you going to sell it? People don't want that. You know, how can you sell that to young people? Does that tally with your experience, Lorne? It does, and what we've tried to do now in our yard is um, give people a whole weekend off. Mm. So it's from Friday evening to Monday morning. So it's, they don't have to come in on Saturday morning. And I think that makes a big difference because they then know every fortnight that they've got that whole weekend that they can plan and go away and do something with their family. And whatever happens, that's always going to happen. And I think that that's, that's helped us tremendously. Yeah. And then if they want, you know, we, sometimes they have a, a, an afternoon off in the week. It depends how busy you are. But I think I'm very much like Joe. We pick up at either end, so mm. we don't get those breaks. But then we're doing it for ourselves, yeah. and it's very different if you're doing it for yourself rather than being employed. But I, I fully agree with everything you say. I mean, I go to the um, National Trainers Federation meetings, oh. and we hear these flat trainers who say, "All oh, my staff only work one weekend in four, and, and I give them two afternoons off in the week. Well, that's great, but we can't all afford to no, do that. Exactly. And, and a lot of us can't afford to do that. Yeah. Um, and I think this is what... It's, it's a two-tier system, isn't it? Well, I think I've been working out how... I, I've, I've done a five-and-a-half-day week for the past four years. Mm -hmm. I pay a Sunday girl. And I've been, for a long time, thinking how I could afford to give mine two days off a week and how I'd work it. At the moment, I'm trying to think, can I give them two... They have, they have a Sunday or they have a Thursday and they pick whatever afternoon they want. Could I afford to give them an extra afternoon off? Maybe, you know, I'm trying to work out ways to do it. And like Lorne said, it's, it's very hard as a small... Because, you know... One person down, you feel it, <laughs> especially if you're racing and then you, you take somebody racing with you and then what's left on the yard, there might be one person left or one person off and that's not practical with 21 horses. So, <clears throat> and I, for not for one minute would I say, you know, it's not fair, the big trainers charge what they charge, they charge what they charge because they're, they're good and people want to have horses with them, absolutely. 
but and obviously smaller trainers like myself would never command those that money. But I don't know how you change it, but we still pay probably better than a lot of the big trainers because we have to. So I don't know how you could change that and regulate that. I don't know if that's possible. I think if we got more people into racing, then I think that these lads and girls that can go off to a pre-training yard because round by us there are four mm -hmm. and they can go and ride and how many horses would there be in each pre-training yard oh it depends roughly. 60 100 you know 100 one of them allegedly 190 wow. and they're desperate and they can 15 pounds a horse half an hour a lot 10 or 15 in the morning a good rider luck on sunday Proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. I am thrilled to be welcoming my next guest to the Luck on Sunday studio. He is a man who has had an extraordinary career as a journeyman jockey in the saddle and then as a trainer of significant repute, a trainer of some of the great sprinters of the 1970s, 80s and 90s. Subsequent to his retirement, he has devoted himself tirelessly and with huge energy uh, to the promotion of welfare in the sport, particularly through the Injured Jockeys Fund and particularly latterly for the house in Moulton, the rehabilitation centre that bears his name. He is, of course, none other than Jack Berry, MBE. Jack, lovely to see you. Good to be here, Nick. Thank you. I think it was the late, great Tom O'Ryan who wrote that there are some people who spend their life hard on the bridle, never challenging themselves, and there's other people who look for new challenges all along the way and that you firmly fell into the second category always looking for the next challenge how you can make a difference is that is that the best assessment of you do you think you've read well i think it's very kind of tom to say that wasn't it but um i do like to look for a new challenge i always have to be doing something and it, where did that stem from is that something that you were imbued with as a as a as a child growing up in in leeds well when i, when I, when I was a kid or eight of us in our family and um, there was myself and my sister Betty. We always seemed to be the ones that did, did the going for, you know? So um, I, w I was always a, a goer, you know? W were you and Betty quite close in age? Two years apart. Yeah. And were you kind of like a sort of fearless double act who'd always... Not, 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 ri not really, but it, we were the, the others were a little bit leery, you know, that was it. I mean, when the mum says, um, go to the shop, I mean, these had their ears back and didn't want to go. So, but I was, and Betty, it was the one to do it. And that was just in you? You just wanted to please? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. And so tell me a little bit about your, your childhood, because you were, you were born before the war, weren't you? And, and, I was and, born uh, in, in 1937. So you can re just about remember wartime Leeds? I can, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I, was, I was born in Leeds, and I hated the place, and there, there were eight kids in our, our family. And um, we used to have some ponies, because we had a rented yard, and. Uh, in the field, so um, I used to ride these ponies, and when I was 11 year old, um, I used to ride in Jim Carnes and the shows and everything, you see, and I met a chap called um, Bob Tate from Boston Spa, he had some ponies, and um, he asked me to ride some of these, which I did, but when it was a five week holiday in the summer, I went to, to um, his place in Boston Spa, and um, at the end of it, I wouldn't come home, because he, he had a small holding, and he had plenty of pigs and hens and everything and these ponies and it, the life was marvellous there, I loved it. So um, at the end of the five weeks, as I said, I wouldn't come home and my mum and the posse from Leeds came to pick me up because we had various letters after, I'd been there for three or four weeks after the, the 
the time. So um, anyway, they, they came to drag me home. But I knew they were coming, so I was aware of it, and I climbed on top of the pigsty roof. And I was look, looking down at these lot, and I kept there until they went. So um, then we made a, a bit of a, a, um, a compromise that if I went to school there at Boston Spa, I could stay. And um, that's what I did, and I was 11 years old. What was it about the different atmosphere and about the horses? Well, it, was a, it was a country. It was a country. And this, this guy, it was um, a cattle um, drover. He, he used to take horses and ponies and uh, cattle to markets and everything because there were, there were um, those things going on at the time. And um, it was the outdoor life. It was marvellous, you know. And stuck in these, it was awful. So you really felt that you identified as a, as a country person rather than someone who wanted to be stuck in a town for the rest well, of your life? Well, I did, yes. And this guy, the following year, he, he sold up. And that was great. And he bought a shop in, in Towton, the village um, where Charlie Hall trained. Yeah. So, I mean, that was music to my ears. I wasn't long before I got to know where the head lad lived. I knocked on his door and I said, would it be OK if, um, if I came and helped out in the yard? So, um, well, I did that and... Um, and a couple of days later, he put, put me on a, on a horse that was, you know, the self it was good company. And so I rode it around the roads, and then within a week or so, I was cantering because I'd, I'd ridden quite a bit, you know. And um, I used to, then, I used to ride every, every weekend there. And then I got so that I would ride first lot every morning before I went to school. And I used to bike the seven miles to school every day after first lot. We've been talking a lot already on, on this programme about trying to recruit young, young people into racing and, and to sort of educate in a way that, that racing can be a great life and horses can be a, a great way of, of, it, of enjoying your life as, as well as the necessity to put in the, the hard graft. Do you think in your case and, and back then in post-war Britain, essentially going and riding racehorses or, or being involved in, in a pursuit like that was actually more attractive to life in the city. And now it's perhaps not quite as attractive because um, life in, in the cities, in the suburbs, has actually, the sort of quality of living has got significantly better. Well, well, it is. I mean, I mean, we keep going on and on and on about that we need more staff in racing. But having said that, when, when I was apprentice, it was hard to get a job in racing. I mean, the, the, the big yards, I mean, they're, they're probably like 30 or 40 horses. We would, in 1956, we were the leading trainers in jump racing. I think we had 32 horses in the yard. And um, that was the year at um, Dornock when the champion early. In fact, I, used to, I, I led him up. I looked Did after you? Dornock, yeah, in 56. Harry Sprague rode him. But um, it, it was hard, and there was nothing like the amount of racing. The volume of it today, I mean, it, it is... God, it's all going into it. I mean, and, and yarns now have got two, 200 plus horses, some of them, you know. Is there any wonder we need stuff? When you went to the, to the racing stable and started working there a lot, did you have genuine aspirations to be a jockey? Did you want I, to be a jockey? I wanted to be a jockey from as long as I can remember. I, want, I wanted to be a jockey, and later on, you won't believe this, but um, I got the inclination I would like to fight bulls in Spain. I would like to be in a bullfighter. I would have ideally liked to have ridden jumpers in the winter and fought bulls in the summer. But, um, Is that no, where the red shirt started? No, 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 it didn't, no. No, that's what I would have done. I mean, I'm not a cruel person, I love my animals, but I would have liked that. Why? What was it that attracted you about that? Was it well, the danger? Well, I, I don't know, but um, when we're at Char Charlie Hall's, we were apprentices, when I was apprentice then, there were two or three other kids there with us, and um, on a night time, sometimes we were going into the foreyard and we would, we would ride the cattle, you know, and we... 
and it was it was always I, li I like the cattle, you know, and I not sort of giving the inclination. So you were going to be a jump jockey in the winter, bull rider in the. I would have liked done that, yeah. In the summer, Is, was, wasn't there something a bit more dangerous you could think of, Jack, or were you just no, choosing? No, the... no, I would settle for that. <laughs> you had a reputation in your time as a rider for riding just about any horse that somebody would offer you, and those were the days when not every horse was a really very safe conveyance. Um, mm. But you've always struck me as a man with significant intelligence, so I'm trying to marry up those two things. Well, when I was at Charlie Holds, I mean, there was George Slack, he was a jockey, and later on, um, Paddy Farrell took the job over, and there were several other jockeys in, in the yard, and it wasn't easy to get rides, you know, those days, because, as I said, there was far less racing than there is today. And um, I remember one day when, when um, I rode my first run at Weatherby on a horse called Sasta Gry, and the very same day... Um, there was a spare ride going in the novice chase. Well, I mean, the train was in the doorway and there wasn't a jockey in sight, so it, it must have been a bit hairy. Anyway, I rode it, and that was my first ride in the chase. Well, I mean, it was, it was a horse that it, it, it had lots of figures to his name, you know, like Pulled and U and F and whatnot, so it wasn't a very good one. Anyway, I rode this yoke round Weatherby, and um, I, was, I was pushing and kicking it from... From, from the off, and it went to the first fence and it ballooned it, it, was, it jumped so high in the air, I am not kidding you, I, I could have seen the power station at Ferrybridge, it was 12, mile, 12 miles away, it was so high. Anyway, I kicked and chased this string around there, and anyway, it, it pulled up in, in the finish at the second last, but it was absolutely knackered, you know. Anyway, we were schooling some horses on the Saturday, and um, at Charlie Hall's, and the boss says to me, he says, um, you better ride that one, Jack. It was first time off the fence for it. He says, you seem as though you're going out of your way to get killed. <laughs> so but that's, I started. And when I, when I became a freelance jockey, I would ride most things. Were you ever frightened? Not really. I wouldn't have done it if I'd have been frightened. But um, it was some, some of them were a bit but some good rides as well. Was your bottle intact when you finished? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, in fact, um, e e even quite recently and until this past couple of years, um, George Duffel and I used to go hunting Wednesdays and Saturdays, and, and we used to sit just behind the field master. And whatever came up, we took a straight line. We went <laughs> over it. Oh my word, mind boggles. You mentioned uh, Paddy Farrell, mm. and it was it was Paddy Farrell's accident. Yeah. Uh, that essentially informed was to inform the rest of your life, really. The it rest was, of your life. It was, yes. It started being a jockey's fund. And, yeah. And well, Pat, Paddy Fowler was, was my best mate, and um, as I said, we worked in the same yard together. And um, in 1964, he, um, he got a fall at the chair fence on board a flight in the National, mm. and um, he, br he broke his back. And we knew from that day that he was paralysed, and, was, he, and he, 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 was, he was, wouldn't ride no more. And in fact, he wouldn't walk again. So, um, we jockeys got together and we had a meeting in Jimmy, Jimmy Fitzgerald's house in Flaxton Moor near Moulton. And uh, what we could do to earn Paddy a few quid, or Mary, his wife, a few pounds, because he had this wife and four kids. They were seven, five, three and five months old. And we thought um, if we could buy him a nice bungalow with, um, you know, with a few acres, of, three or four acres of land and a couple of boxes for the kids' ponies, that's what we would do. So we, um, we went to um, Suddle with a bucket to collect money for him. 
that we arranged we would do this at the meeting. Anyway, we went we went to Suttle, but it wasn't very good really because I mean, we had to explain what we were collecting the money for, you see. And um, we thought this is no good. So if we, we'd go to a higher power meeting mm. and Weatherby, where Paddy Fall was um, the leading jockey, he was a northern leading jockey for three or four years on the trot. And um, we went there and we asked the stewards if we could announce it that we would be going round at a given time in between races with a bucket to collect for Paddy Fallow. So, um, and we call it the Paddy Fallow Fund. Anyway, they announced it, and I promise you, when we went out there with the buckets, there was a queue after furlong long, people Amazing. wanting to put money in, and there were buckets and everybody donating, giving us money and money and money. And it got so big that we, we couldn't control this, and, and trustees were formed. There was John Oaksey and... Mm. Um, Wing Commander Vaux and, and a few more trustees, and um, they took it over, and, and the Injured Jockeys Fund, um, it went on from there. But a few weeks before that, Tim Brugshaw had mm. got injured on a horse called um, Lucky Dora in a herd race at, at Aintree, and um, he needed some assistance, so they called it the Farrell Brugshaw Fund. And then other jockeys, after, after they got what they wanted, and you know, Parry and Tim, and it was ongoing, they were getting injured, so we, we raised it to the, injured jockey, to the National Hunt Jockeys Fund. And then flat jockeys started falling off, so we call it the Injured Jockeys Fund <laughs> it is today. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.